0: Hello and welcome to Local Zero Pod, it's just me today, Matt but we've got a fantastic episode lined up with Hannah Ritchie. Hannah is a senior researcher and head of research at Our World in Data. If you don't know Our World in Data, you really ought to log on and it'll help provide the data to answer many of the questions you've always wanted answering. She is located at the Oxford Martin School at the University of Oxford, so we're absolutely thrilled to have her along. And she's going to talk a little bit about why data is so important in framing and answering some of the key issues around climate change and what we ought to do about it, but also the importance of trying to communicate and engage with people around these issues using data. So thrilled to have her along. And actually shortly after we recorded the chat with Hannah, she was awarded Scotland's Youth Climate Champion award so huge congratulations to you Hannah for that as i said just me today um been a chaotic few weeks for us all um we've got uh, Becky moving house Fraser knee deep in solving various climate and just transition crises um so it's left to me but i was thrilled just to have a one on one and learnt a tremendous amount so i really hope you enjoy today's session and uh yeah plug on in
2: I'm Dr Hannah Ritchie, I'm Head of Research at Irward and Data and I'm a Senior Researcher at the University of Oxford.
0: Welcome, Hannah. An absolute pleasure to have you on. Not only am I a big fan of uh, your own work and your communications through Twitter, one of my favourite accounts, I'm also a big user of our world in data and regularly encourage all of our students to to head along there and to make use of of what is fast becoming the go-to repository for for data around global issues. I think I first became aware of it during COVID-19 and since then realised its power way beyond health issues but i just wanted you maybe to talk a little bit about what our world in data is what does it do what's it meant to achieve before maybe we talk a little bit about how you got involved with it
2: sure so our world in data is a online web platform so you can go to our world what we try to do is kind of bridge this gap between academic data and research and then stuff that people can implement, whether that's the general public, whether that's policymakers, journalists. Basically, we kind of sit between academia and the general public to basically try and translate what research is actually telling us. Because I think I'm from an academic background and I think it's very easy to get kind of stuck, research to get stuck in this kind of bubble where it doesn't actually make its way out into the wider world to have an impact. So we kind of try to translate mm. that into like a a language that people can understand, data visualizations that people can explore. And we do that across a range of topics. So my background is very much environment. So like climate change, land use, biodiversity, food, but we do it across a broad range of topics. Like we frame it as the world's largest problems. So that's everything from poverty and inequality to health. As you said, like the COVID pandemic, we played a massive role there and basically presenting global data on health. So try and cover all of these really, really big problems, and try and translate what the research says into stuff that we can actually put into action.
0: Most of our listeners will have a, a primary interest in climate and the environment, and you know what they can do. And you mentioned that's your your area. So, what kind of data? if our listeners log on to our world in data now, what kind of things might they might they encounter and what kind of things could they kind of usefully start playing with and understanding?
2: Right, so like a kind of core part of like our website is like these interactive data visualizations. You get basically a global map where you can hover over countries and it can tell you different values. Mm-hmm. And the data we present on there is stuff like how much CO2 emissions is each country producing. But not only that, we really try to get to the heart of like the different questions that people ask, so not just like the total amount country but per person how much is that what share of global total is that if we look at data since 1750 like how much has the uk for example contributed over the last two centuries how does that compare to china the us india so we try to present all of these different comparisons in a really just digestible way. So that's the kind of stuff on CO2 emissions, but we have a ton on energy, for example. So you can go and see the UK's energy mix, like how much is coal, yep. renewable, solar, wind, and how has that changed over time? So it really gives you this picture of like not only like where we are today, but like how's how this has changed over the last sometimes 200-odd years. Um, so we try to present not just not just the outputs so like what we're actually producing in terms of co2 emissions or, or climate changes but also the inputs like how we can transform our energy system or food systems
0: so you know i mean as a researcher i'm always playing with these kind of data sets and and you and colleagues have made my life a lot easier because it's kind of a one-stop shop for a lot of this this data otherwise i'm kind of you know uh, taking something here or there and and having to kind of synthesize this um just, I wanted to kind of bring it back to the, the public and their use of this. So since you've set this up, have you found that particularly with some of the, the major challenges that have happened over the last few years, COVID, the energy crisis, worsening climate crisis with an economic slump and rampant inflation, who were the users of this, this platform? Because as I understand it, it's, it's, it's open source, you know, it's open access, unlike a lot of these other, other platforms. So who, who are your bread and butter customers?
2: Mm, I mean, it's very, very broad. So we have like over 100 million users in a year. And that ranges from like yep. researchers such as yourself, where, as you said, like, we don't want you to be wasting your time, like constantly looking up different data sets and random different sources. And if you like replicate, I think all the people that are doing like research like you, like that's such a waste of time when we could just like put it in yeah. like one place and everyone uses that but that's ranges from like journalists who want like accurate figures in their newspaper articles or policymakers who want to understand how does my country compare to another country but mm-hmm. also just the general public and that ranges from like a lot of the stuff that we do often somewhat tries to address like dinner table chat where like people yeah. will go back and forward on arguments of like the per capita stuff for example like Oh, like the UK doesn't um, emit a lot of CO two as a total, but then you break down like differences of like yep. per capita, right. how does that compare to other countries? Or yeah. from a general public perspective, it also like lets us hold governments to account yeah. and policy to account, so we can yeah. quite easily see like is is their country pulling away? Are they kind of lying to us in terms of? overstating emissions reductions, or are we doing well? Are we actually really doing well in reducing greenhouse gas emissions or increasing solar or wind? So they've just got a really, really broad user base.
0: But I mean, that's so important, isn't it? It's to provide a baseline understanding of what the situation is. Also from from um, a position of authority. So how in this age of misinformation and fake news and, uh, you know, as, as, as we, we speak, you know, we've uh, um, moving through US midterms and, mm. and all the issues around, around what is trusted information, is that something you've had to encounter in order to to ensure that your users believe the information that you're presented to them?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, our like whole thing is like grounded on trust. Like, if people don't trust the data that we provide, then our kind of whole reputation just crumbles. So, like, we take mm. that stuff like really seriously. I think one like check we like to have, or actually, I think one thing that that helps that. Or, like, helps potential biases that we could put into the way we present the data. Like, I think people think that data is just data, but there is a way to present data that can tell a particular story that you want to do. Like, for example, during the COVID pandemic, it was very easy for global leaders to paint their country in a good light by presenting data only next to countries that were doing really, really, really bad. So there, there is different ways of presenting the data that tells the story you want to tell. I think one check that we have on that is that we have this, a very diverse team in terms of disciplines even. So I kind of do the environmental stuff, but we have researchers on economics, uh, health, like other dimensions that might be a little bit in conflict with some of the, the story I would maybe tell. So I think that's one check. I think another big one that we really like to see is actually seeing people argue back and forward, but using our data. So people will be entrenched in an argument, but they'll always be coming back to our source of data to have this yeah. back and forward. So we kind of like to hold this kind of very non-partisan position where like we actually have people on the left and the right having an argument but they're using the same data grounded in the middle and I think for us that's quite positive although they might have like very different opinions they're at least trying to come at it from the point of view of like empirical evidence-based facts which is maybe not the end point but is maybe a start point
0: yeah, I find that interesting, exactly, you know, what, well, what narrative are we going to explore is, is almost in itself a kind of a political yeah, decision, exactly. or at least, you know, what's a priority? So, you know, I find that fascinating, this notion of having a non-partisan, or at least a uh, a spectrum, a political spectrum, you know, represented there, but also a disciplinary spectrum. So mm. as, as a fellow researcher, you know, interdisciplinary research is, is often at the, the forefront of tackling these wicked global problems, not least climate change. But I, I wanted to ask about your own background and how you arrived here. So you've mentioned environment a few times, but you know, what's, how, did you, how did you get into this? You're a well-renowned researcher in your own right at Oxford as well. Mm. How did you arrive here?
2: Yeah, so I did all of my training at Edinburgh, I love the university there. My bachelor's was very much in environmental geoscience. That was very broad, actually, um, which is part of why I liked it. It was like climate was one part of it, but there was also oceanography and meteorology and earth systems. So really, really broad across all the kind of environmental disciplines, which I really enjoyed. But then I went in to do a master's mm. in carbon management. I think you've had Dave Ray on the show previously. Um, he was yes, my uh, my professor on that program. And kind of why I wanted to do that master's is I felt I had, like, the scientific background in climate change. But what was really good about that program is that it was a mix of the sciences, but also the business school and the economics department. So it was this, like, very nice interdisciplinary course where I had the science background already, but I didn't have any business background. I didn't have any economics background. And I felt like having that whole package to understand these wicked problems would be much more useful. So that's kind of why I chose that. And then I went into my PhD actually with Dave Ray, who was my supervisor. And there I very much looked at food systems yeah. and environmental impacts, but not just looking at the environmental lens, but trying to compare, to like, bring in the nutritional health lens of it. So not only, like, could we, how could we reduce the environmental impacts of food, but how you could feed everyone mm-hmm. in the world a nutritious diet without wrecking the planet at the same time. So that was kind of the broad question on my PhD.
0: So uh, this begs the question, right? What are some of the answers around that? And I I follow on your Twitter account. I think the last few weeks, or sorry, last few days, in fact, you were responding to some media coverage around foods to eat. uh, What's, you know, what are the best foods to eat or not eat with Mm. respect to emissions? So um, I just maybe looking at some of the data you've you've drawn out and, and spotlighted with the Our World in Data uh, and thinking of our listeners very keen to know what might be some of the you know the good or bad decisions around food and climate is there anything you might be able to to share there top tips
2: for sure I could talk on this topic all day Um, (laughs) I think the food stuff is just always really politically charged because I think we we feel really passionately Mm -hmm. about the food that we eat it's what we put in our bodies it's really really crucial to health so I get why people are really charged by it and it get, the debates get very fiery around it. I think definitely from like an individual choice point of view. And I actually think food is probably where we can have like the biggest difference individually. I think you could argue we have mm. some impacts in terms of energy, for example, but like food choices, we're making these choices like three, four times a day, and you really can just pick whatever you want to eat. I know there's like price considerations and stuff, but for a lot of us, we can really pick whatever we want. My top tips by far, the by far the biggest one, is just to eat less meat overall, but specifically beef and lamb. That's just what emerges from the research time and time and time again. Yeah, It's not even like tiny differences. It's not like it's like 50% higher. It's, we're literally talking like 10 times higher wow. or something. So yeah, yeah. even really small substitutions of substituting out beef is by far like the biggest change that you could make to your diet.
0: So on, on the substitutions thing, this is a, a topic of discussion that comes up time and time and time again between uh, within my family, with friends, uh, you know, right, we, we're gonna swap this out, that's bad, okay, whatever that decision is based on, hopefully some some meaningful data, such as uh, what, what you're profiling, and we're gonna bring this in. Are there, and this notion of substituting is, is kind of, I guess, at the uh, the forefront of decarbonizing our, our food and the environmental impact of, of that food. Are there any substitutes that you've kind of come across in terms of your, the data that actually, and maybe kind of the wrong call, and actually the data that you've, you know, that you've you've spotlighted makes that clear, makes that argument.
2: I think when it comes to beef and lamb, just because they're so such large outliers, you could basically substitute anything, and it would it would be a positive yeah. change. Some of the substitutions that people don't, which actually don't make a big difference, are, for example, mm. I think. The organic one is big, where we assume that organic food automatically, that substitution would really lower your carbon footprint and environmental footprint, when actually that's just not true. So it could actually potentially increase it. I think the other big one that I see a lot is always eating local food. So people assume that if they substitute something coming from the other side of the world for something produced locally, then automatically they will just reduce their carbon footprint. And I see this argument a lot, for example... With local beef. So people recognise, okay, beef might have a high carbon footprint. But if I'm buying my local beef, then that must surely be better than shipping or flying soy Mm. or avocados in from from South America. But when you actually crunch the numbers, because most food is not transported by plane, because that's just really inefficient and costly. Like most comes by ship. And it's actually, shipping is very carbon efficient. So actually it does not make a large difference to the footprint of your food, like how far it's travelling. So by far, like your soy and avocado yeah. is just not, shipping that from South America is just not going to increase your carbon footprint enough for it to be worse than local beef.
0: No. And, and obviously, you know, our world in data covers the world and its data relating to these global challenges. And if we just keep the focus on, on climate here, are there any other kind of, Really counterintuitive findings that have kind of popped out of this data that you've 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 actually stopped in your tracks and thought, wow, I wasn't you know you're a very informed researcher dealing with this all the time. I wasn't expecting that, and something maybe you know there's been much greater interest as a result, media or public or otherwise.
2: I mean, I think there's loads of like I think a lot of my work comes from questions I had myself or wasn't clear on. For example, the 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 travel distance one is 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 important. Like I think I probably massively overestimated how much emissions come from transport and where it's coming from. Another big Mm. one is or a concern I had going like more vegetarian vegan was this link between soy and Amazon deforestation, and is that what are are our substitution of these products like really destroying the Amazon and therefore really really bad for the climate? But when you look at the data, like. 70 more than 75 percent of soy is going to animal feed and in the uk or in the eu actually the because most of the soy grown in brazil is genetically modified and eu regulations basically mean that we can't consume that directly like the the soy that we'd be eating here is just not this not the soy that's destroying the amazon most of that's going to animal feed.
0: okay and, and, yeah, I mean, it gets, gets very complicated very quickly, you know, in terms of the, the land use implications from all of this. But a lot of the, the data that, you know, I end up surfing on, on your website and others, at the end of the day, it boils down to, Right. What decisions do we make on the basis of what the data is telling us? And are these decisions I as an ind- individual can take or are they decisions that ultimately fall to somebody else? Maybe a much bigger entity, government, industry, maybe somebody as a consumer I can apply pressure mm. to in, or as a voter. But yeah, just your sense of the importance in terms of tackling climate change, the, the relative importance of individual decisions versus societal or you know broader Uh, you know government industry decisions that where you're talking about you know an agglomeration of decision makers having to move sort of en masse as a herd towards the same goal
2: I mean I think one thing to like caveat there is that and I think because what we talked about earlier like our wedding data's position as like presenting data and information largely and like a way that people can digest I think there we walk like a very fine line between like presenting the data and also almost like forcing decisions on people like we never we Mm. know we never tell people this is what you should do or this is what you have to do we kind of walk this fine line of presenting the data and letting people use that data to inform their decisions like i would never tell someone to like eat less beef i would say if you want to reduce your carbon footprint then you can eat less beef um <laughs> i mean yeah i mean i, I mean actually some people come back and say yeah, i'm not that bothered about the climate which is okay that's fine yeah. i'm not going to force that on you but in terms of to get back to the question to get into in terms of what role individuals play i think there are a couple of just like really really massive changes that you can make that in terms of your personal carbon footprint like take you maybe 80 percent of the way they are i think mean, we're used to like these books that will tell us or these articles like a hundred ways to save the planet or like sometimes even more Mm. and i think some of the problem with that is it completely overwhelms us we were just like spinning our heads spinning all day trying to make decisions that really stresses us out we worry about have we made that wrong decision about whether i use the hand dryer or like a paper towel yeah yeah and when it comes down to it most of those decisions just don't make a big difference and my concern like it's fine if you want to do them but I think some of my concern there is that we like almost like reach this level of fatigue where we feel like we're constantly making these decisions all the time and actually nothing's yeah. really moving. So some of the kind of comebacks to like, why yeah. am I even doing this? Nothing's changing. I'm massively changing my whole life because I'm just constantly making decisions. So I think we need to get clear on, like, what are the big things that I can do that really shift the needle?
0: You mentioned food. Mm. What, what else?
2: So in terms of food, the big things you can do are eat less Meat, specifically beef yeah. and lamb, even if that's substituting for chicken or pork, that was actually yeah. massive for your carbon footprint. Reducing dairy intake, so plant based substitutes yeah. are very good there. Uh, reducing food waste um, is just yeah. the other big massive one. And then, like, another one that we don't really talk about but is kind of important is just like overconsumption in general. Like, a lot of us just eat okay. too much, like above our requirements, which in some ways is the same as food waste.
0: And if we're moving outside of food, Uh, what are the other big ticket items because I like this idea focus on the things that shift the dial is tran- transport or are we talking you know are we having to look at energy efficiency in the home or you know i'm a way off
2: no so that's correct so food is a big one in terms of energy there are just a couple of massive things you can do at home by far the biggest one is is insulation heating especially in the uk is just massive in terms of our our energy footprint so insulation in the home which is not doable for everyone like i rent a flat so i kind of out of my control but if you can do that great Transport is also massive, so flying is obviously really big, but then also driving. So like either getting rid of your car, or another big one is just if you can't get rid of your car, then switching to an electric vehicle. Which there's always this debate, or like I get loads of pushback that you know driving an EV is just as bad as driving petrol, yeah. which is just completely wrong. Well, it's just completely false. Like even if you're
0: from, from, from a carbon from perspective, a carbon perspective, sure, yes.
2: yes. Especially in the UK, where like, we get a lot of our electricity from low-carbon sources now. But even for countries where most of their electricity comes from coal, so China, for example, even in China, your electric vehicle is better than a petrol one. So that is that myth yeah. is completely false.
0: I'm really fascinated, Hannah. You take those key lessons, okay? So you, you've... The data, which anybody can access on, on your website will point you I'm assuming will point you in the direction it, it won't tell you to do these things but it'll say if you want to achieve these ends these are yeah. the actions you need to take so from your experience of of our world in data but also your own experience as a as a, as a researcher and increasingly I think mean, all academics having to do much more around public engagement and trying to translate as you say these research findings into something that makes sense mm. to the every person what are the the big lessons you've learned about getting that data out there you know so what's what's the bridge there between the data and actually getting individuals to take these actions I
2: think one of the big ones is identifying what questions people have like I think a core part of my job is looking at what questions people have and saying has the research already answered this and 99% of the time the research has already answered it like I think that's a, like a little bit of my um, or how you asked me earlier, like how I kind of got into this. I think that's kind of the reason why I like this bridging role between academia rather than being right in academia. I think the like, a core part mm. of what our and data does relies on the fact that the research already has most of the answers to the questions that people have. It's just that it's not getting out there. So it's my job to get it out there. So I think addressing people's questions or preparing people for that dinner table chat where they get pushed back and pre- Equipping them with the, the 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 evidence that refutes what uh, Uncle Tom says about beef or yeah. renewables using so much land, like it's answering the core questions and pushback that people have.
0: Yeah, so I, I find that really interesting. And if, if I may, sort of flag another website which I think tries to do a similar thing with, with the Carbon Brief mm-hmm. and some of the excellent work that comes through that, Simon Evans and colleagues, mm-hmm. which I think probably taking a kind of doing it in a slightly different way, but trying to identify these these questions, right? this is a question that a lot of people are asking at the moment what is the answer a bit of a bit of a fact checking exercise yeah. okay is that enough is that actually ultimately is the work that that you're doing through our world in data maybe colleagues at carbon brief is this reaching the people the uncle toms that you've just mentioned uh who have a completely alternative uh, reality view of the, the role of beef or flying how do we reach them and and how does the wh- What's the role of data and, and, and the, uh, the bridging exercise that you're undertaking? How do you reach these these individuals? I
2: think with some individuals, you won't reach them by using data on climate. I think some people will just, it's just not in line with their values or they just don't care a lot about climate or they don't believe that climate change is real. I think just by shoving data about climate down their, their necks is just not, it's not going to do that. And I'm like very aware that it's not going to do that. How you reach those people is to make the incentives such that it doesn't matter whether they believe in climate change or not, it just makes sense for them to make those changes. So I think energy is like a really like core example there where even if you don't believe that climate change is real, it just makes economic sense to switch to solar or wind or nuclear because that's just the cheap option. You just need to make the sustainable option the cheap option. So I think economics just plays a massive, mm-hmm. massive role there. Like we've seen, for example, when Trump came into office, he was like very dead set on, like, we're going to get coal up and running again. If you look at like what happened to coal consumption in the US during this term, it fell. Yeah. It fell because economically, it just yeah. doesn't make sense yeah. for the US. So he did not do that because he was really passionate about climate change. That just happened because that's just how the economics worked out. So I think for the people that are not directly engaged in the climate or environmental discussions, you just need to meet them where they are and find out what incentives would push them to the sustainable choice anyway. And a lot of that just comes Mm -hmm. down to economics.
0: So then that's about potentially a different audience. So if you're trying to ensure that the most environmentally sustainable choice is the most economic choice then clearly the data that you're you're curating and bridging needs to speak to those that can make those those policy and investment decisions and that they crucially have a vested interest in, in delivering that uh, you know more environmental environmentally sustainable planet and at the same time, assuming that those changes are made, then then your role I guess is presenting you know the, the economic implications of this of these actions. so as you say, the kind of data you're presenting is not the carbon emissions reduction of insulating your home, but how much you might save per annum exactly. um and, and that would bring in a different audience who would then maybe be be more meaningfully engaged in in, in the data
2: exactly so yeah you could use it for energy sources so like solar is just you now way cheaper than coal but you can also use that yeah. in a transport perspective so look how much money your electric vehicle is going to save you and i think that's actually where when it come back to like personal responsibility and what role we play i think that's often where People really engaged in climate are like the early movers that moves it for mm. the rest of the world. So, yeah. the way that the sustainable op- options have become the cheapest is basically through scale um, and um, kind of build up of these sources over time. And that's only happened because people have bought them early when they were more expensive. So, for example, if you go back 10 years, solar was almost 10 times as expensive as it is now. It's now way cheaper than coal, but previously it was way, way, way more expensive than coal. And the only reason we've achieved that is because we've deployed more and more and more solar because people have adopted it early. It's the same with, for yeah. example, meat substitutes. So if you buy like meat substitutes in the supermarket, what you're doing there is basically pushing the price down. The hope is that you can, we will be able to push the price down quick enough that it will just be much, much cheaper than meat. We can roll it out globally as like this really cheap, but high-quality protein source. So, as a consumer, when you're buying these products or making these decisions, you're not just doing it for your personal carbon footprint. You're basically pushing down the price for everyone else and making it their default option as well.
0: That's fascinating. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, maybe a retrospective of your, your years working on this is, what kind of key data do you think really needs to be transmitted? And translated to not just the general public but our our politicians in order to 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 make that progress you know what are the what are the key what are the key points we need to be landing with the data year in year out to keep climate progress on track
2: for me the biggest one is how quickly things have changed in only a few years like i think i was at paris in 2015 just the mood and the optimism that i have now is just wildly different from seven years ago and i think that's just because if you look at data from 2015 in terms of like the growth in energy sources the policies that were on the table like it was really really not looking good like we're still we're still gonna look based on current targets we're still going to be above two degrees but it's came down massively since 2015 and i'm way more optimistic about it And i think what's key to that is is the rapid change that's only happened in the last few years so if you're looking at data from yeah. 2018 you're just wildly out of date like to keep yeah, up yeah. with this stuff you need to be looking at the most recent data because a lot of the trends are just going up and up and up incredibly quickly yeah. so i think it's trying to keep up with like the the last few years
0: so what what gives you maybe in a bit more sort of specific is you know what gives you the greatest hope positivity some of these trends what what when you wake up in the morning what gives you a little spring in your step that you think actually you know what maybe we have cracked this
2: i think for me it's just the like plunging costs of low carbon technologies like i think for me like what's key because we're not going to get absolutely everyone on board and people have other prior i mean i'm obsessed with climate change but not everyone is obsessed with climate change and maybe i think they should be but in reality people just really care about prices and economics and uh, global poverty and inequality i think what's key to it is the economics of it and if you just look at the economics over the last few years like low-carbon technologies have just absolutely plunged
0: good i mean that uh, we ought to chat more often because you're, you're giving <laughs> me a lot of reasons to be positive positive. and actually you know as cop, cops roll around there's there's invariably I, I think it's fair to say a lot of the the coverage tends to be quite pessimistic mm. almost this is a personal opinion now but almost uh, on purpose because i think it's about you know we need to do more need to do more but you know is is your general sense that actually maybe we can avoid the worst of of this if in in the current direction of travel Mm -hmm. economically politically do do you genuinely have hope
2: yeah i do and i i mean that's not a complacent hope like it's not just going to happen itself and it's going to be quite difficult but uh, I am optimistic. One of the things that makes me optimistic beyond the like plunging costs is like mm. I've been making this chart for years on the updating like where diff- where globally we might end up based on for example the pledges that every country's made or the targets yeah. that they've set and basically every year I bring that further and further and further down because we were heading to a world that was maybe three degrees higher uh, warmer. Um, and I think people still have in their head that we're heading for three or four degrees. But actually, when you look at the pledges that are on the table, we're going to end up just above two, like 2.1 or something. Targets are a little bit higher because we haven't brought our targets in line yeah. with our uh, Sorry, our policies in line with our pledges. But the fact that it's coming down and down and down and very close to two degrees makes me very optimistic. That means that governments think that that's achievable and actually gives yeah. us something to hold them to account.
0: I mean that's a really important point because I think apathy is is one of the the most dangerous kind of emotions mm. that we we can we can have in reaction to this. And if if there is demonstrable evidence-based progress that is being made, uh, that then almost drives further action then. Uh, and that is uh, that notion of momentum. I agree. You know, I was in Paris. It was r- really on a knife edge. It mm. felt like the beginning of something, but it moving into that. So I completely agree, Anna. And maybe just to finish trying to bring this back to the local, the individual, um, maybe, you know, just thinking a little bit more, more personally, and uh, also about, you know, your, your life and where you live and, and your background, is there anything in particular, any advice you give to our listeners about, you know, what they can do to try and shift the dial? You've mentioned some of the big, big lifestyle changes, mm. but is, is there anything you've learned over the years that, that kind of gives you that sense of optimism on a personal level th- things that you do that you think really matter?
2: Yeah, I think the I think for many years I was quite despondent. I think after my degrees, like I think just being like almost like hit in the face every day with like the realities of climate change, like made me very despondent because I did feel like nothing was happening. But I think the reality is, especially in the last few years, things really are happening, and I would definitely, I, I definitely use that momentum to make these changes. So beyond like the big kind of lifestyle changes that I I mentioned previously, like I think a kind of underrated concept is. The handprint. So, we focus a lot on how we reduce our personal footprint. And that's just mm. basically trying to cause as, as little damage as we possibly can, which is fair and is, is reasonable. But I think yeah. we need to be a bit more ambitious on that. And by that, I mean what I would frame as the handprint, which is not just about like your personal impact, but like the impact you have on people around you impact you could have on um, policies, innovations. So that's how you vote, that's how you communicate with other people. That is the, the products you buy in the supermarket, as I mentioned earlier, that will just drive down the prices and make sustainable options available for everyone in the world. Like I think we focus so much on just this personal reduction of harm, yeah. which is a good start, but it's not enough. I think we can just do way more by extending our contributions beyond ourselves
0: hannah it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you uh, in terms of your handprint with more than a, a million readers i think your, your site every month i think you said even a hundred million <laughs> over over the year your your handprint will be huge and congratulations to all the fantastic work you're doing so thank you very much and, and please uh, you know you're welcome back anytime
2: thank you very much for having me
0: Huge thanks to Dr. Hanni Ritchie of Our World in Data, hosted at the University of Oxford. What a fantastic chat, incredibly inspiring, and really thrilled to have her along. Our usual reminder to please follow us at LocalZeroPod on Twitter, uh, whilst it still exists. We haven't abandoned the sinking ship just yet, Uh, I saw a tweet earlier from Chris in Edinburgh saying he's moved over to Mastodon, Godspeed, maybe we'll follow soon. Also, if you have anything longer to share with us, please, please email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share those thoughts. And finally, it would massively help us out if you could just take 15 seconds of your day to rate and review Local Zero on Apple Podcasts. It gives us a massive boost and it also helps us to get the word out there to more people about Local Zero. Uh, But until then and until the next show, bye-bye.
2: produced by the Spoken Media.